Oh my goodness, for a moment there, I, no one was going to be up here. I was in the music and just enjoying myself. I hope you guys were too as well. Uh, my name is Trevor. I'm part of a charitable giving team. Okay, geek side note, I'm going to take you on a little rabbit trail. Read The Fabric of Civilization. Oh, what a gripping thing. The History of Textiles? No. I'm going to recommend it. This song reminded me of that. We use so many textile jargons and other things unraveling. Terrific read. Really, really interesting. You would be surprised about that one. A little bit of history. I'm a history major, so I figure I should share my gift with the world. Does everyone feel like you've had... That's an amazing morning already. Well, just for me. Thanks, guys. We also want to say thank you. It's the time of the year that you're getting your tax receipts from last year. If, you've, if you haven't gotten something by next week, maybe reach out to the office and make sure that you're getting a receipt from us. And that's maybe a really good opportunity to do two things. One, as I talked about at the beginning, take that breath and really appreciate your support last year. Kept us going, kept us building. We have an audience here. We have a great virtual audience. We are part of that. And it's also a great time at this time of the year as you're looking at that tax time. What a fun thing, tax time, eh? But on, not on that side note. To really say, how do I feel? Do I want to, do I have some capacity to donate more? Is this a cause that I really believe in? And, and we really should, because Vince told us today he's going to tell us if we're going to hell or not. So that's the message, right? So I mean, like, this is, this is some big payback, I think. But don't do it out of fear. I think really look into your heart and find, like, from gratitude, where can we be on this one? Like, what does this journey look like for you? We are a part of this, and we just want to say thank you very much for that. Again, if you don't have your tax receipt by next week, reach out to the office to make sure you get that. And have a great morning, everybody. Okay, I love that song. R.E.M. from way back. Um, welcome to Friends Church. Uh, welcome you all here. There's probably, I don't know, 50, 60 of us. There's probably another 30, which represents about another 60 people watching live online. That represents another 300 families that watch this video between now and the next couple weeks. That's in addition to about the 75,000 people who tune into our podcast every quarter. That's a big group of us, isn't it? But you all are the hardcore people because you're here in person. Um, I grew up in a religious family, and when I say religious family, I mean quite religious. We were in the church every Sunday. Uh, did anyone grow up watching Wild, Wor Wild World of Disney? Is that what it was called? Wonderful. Every time, so all those movies, they were an hour long. I only got 45 minutes because we had to leave to go to church because we never missed church. So there's all these movies from my childhood. I don't actually know how they end, but I know the first 45 minutes, great. Church was a big deal for us. Religion was a big deal for us. I have a pivotal memory of this itinerant preacher. There's a guy who came through. They called it a crusade. I don't know that they actually did the research on what that word really meant. But let's just try and think positively about that. <laughs> the history major over there is going, Aish. So they had this thing called the crusade, which was kind of like you had a week of preaching. So not only did we have church on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, I had youth church Friday evening. Now we had church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And this preacher would come in, this crusade guy, and it was like, 
hardcore. Like he scared the crap out of me. He'd have all these images. And now that we've all been through this afterlife series, you guys know that these are just some images that people have created. But he'd light a candle. Then he'd hold his hand over the candle and be like, you feel that? Now go closer. You feel that? Now imagine that all over your body. Now imagine that all over your body for eternity. And then he asked this question. Are you sure you're not going to hell when you die? That was intense. Now you guys understand that he's made some assumptions here, but put that aside. I'm a kid of 10, 12 years old. I'm watching his metaphors. I'm going, I thought I was good. I don't know. At the end of every service, he'd have us bow our heads and everyone would close their eyes. And he's like, if you're not sure that you can answer that question, put up your hand. All five days. I didn't know. What if, what, if, what if I didn't do the right thing? Or what if I did the right thing, but now I did the wrong thing? And What if the thing my parents told me wasn't the right thing? If somebody sat you down, just leave that question up for a bit, okay? If somebody sat you down and said, are you sure you're not going to go to hell when you die? How would you answer that? And I don't mean the fun hell where we joke and say, well, all my friends are going to be there. It's going to be a party. <laughs> I'm talking about those conceptions of hell. I was reading through the Middle Ages. Man, those people, and it's mostly guys, they liked to scare the crap out of people. It's like they had this whole, like, scare you straight movement. So they had these incredible images. In fact, I saw someone I was in Italy of these people, like, one guy's laying down and he's got, like, a spit with barbs on it and it's tied to the person's entrails and it's like slowly dragging them out as it's like people are burning around them. It was just as like the most horrific images they could come up with. Hell, are you sure? How would you answer that? As a little kid, I was like, man, I will do or say whatever you need me to do or say to make sure that that doesn't happen to me. Now you guys know that conceptions of hell have evolved over time. At the very beginning of our spiritual ancestors, in the beginning of the Christian tradition, there was no afterlife. There was no hell. There was no heaven. You were born, you lived, and you died. The author of Ecclesiastes says, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's it. This question didn't even exist back then. But then we evolved. I think it's because of fairness. There's this idea that, wait a second, I lived a good life, and I'm sick, and my life is bad, and I die early. But that joker over there is mean to people, is like rude, cheat steals, and they seem to be making out like a bandit, like having the best life ever. That's not fair. And so they evolved, and they said, okay, we're all going to die, but at some point, the good are going to be resuscitated. 
They're going to come back to life in their bodies. They didn't have this sense of spirit and body. They, they thought that was ridiculous. Body. This is, you either have a body and you're alive. No body, you're dead. That's how it worked. But the second they did that, something happened, right? The question was, well, wait a second. Who's going to get resuscitated? And who's going to stay in the ground? Or more importantly, am I going to get resuscitated? What's the criteria? What's the criteria that makes you get the good thing and avoid the bad thing? That's what the preacher was asking. Do you have the right criteria? I didn't know. I thought I knew, but I wasn't sure now. His was different from what I grew up with. Is he right? Am I, was I wrong? Our first spiritual ancestors thought of no afterlife. Then the, the first conception was, again, resuscitation. At some point, we all die. Then at some point, all the good people resuscitated. But when I talked about this the first time, I didn't tell you guys this because it's a bit wacky. The criteria of our earliest ancestors has nothing to do with our actions has nothing to do with what we believe and don't believe it has to do with which group you're a part of and for our individualistic western mindset that just seems crazy but it's true this is how they conceived of it it's like if you're a part of the right group you got resuscitated if you're part of the wrong group dead you're dead so think of it this way let's assume we're all fringe churchians doesn't matter what you did. As long as you're a friend's church in, you get resuscitated. Sweet. Now, the Jewish community, I've been studying this guy named E.P. Sanders a whole lot, First Temple Judaism. I'm not going to geek out. You're welcome that I won't geek out. But essentially, group identity was very, very, uh, let's say it this way. You couldn't really get out of it. You had to do something like really bad to get out of the group. There's a tremendous amount of grace and forgiveness and love. And so this group identity, it was like, it was big and robust. And we were all going to get resuscitated. That's pretty wicked, huh? But then the Greco-Roman era starts coming up. And we start getting this influence of individualism. My soul and your soul. We start getting this separation from the body to we have a soul that's eternal and our bodies die. And in Jesus' time, if, he would, if the preacher would have asked him that question, you know, how do you know for sure you're going to go to hell when you die? First, Jesus wouldn't have, he doesn't seem to conceive of heaven and hell. Remember, he's an apocalypticist. In his mind, what's going on is there's a battle between good and evil. Unfortunately, it's like this. Evil seems to be winning a lot. But there will be a time in the future. He thought it was in the lifetime of his students. He said, in that time, good is going to take a kick butt over evil, and it's going to win. And evil is going to go away, and good's going to win. He used words like this. Sickness would be die, and we'd be healthy. Death would be no more, and we'd live again. But then you ask, well, how does that work? He's not even thinking of this heaven and hell criteria that our, my preacher growing up seems to be focused on. So what's his criteria? Now, he tells this crazy story. 
He says, at the end of time, again, remember, he's an apocalypticist. You explain evil by saying there's a fight between good and evil. Evil's currently winning. But there will be a time when good wins. In that moment, he says, he tells his story, he says, the Son of Man will come and judge. Now, the Son of Man is a term, he's bringing a very old story into this moment. He's not talking about himself. He's this old story in Daniel that he's bringing into this moment. But he says this, there's going to be a moment where I'm going to separate everyone into two groups. The Son of Man is going to. On the one hand, Jesus doesn't think this way, but the preacher would say, these all are going to, so how about we do this? This, this way, you all are going to go to heaven. Which means, sorry, y'all. <laughs> Someone's got it, right? <laughs> and Jesus said, okay, so the Son of Man will come, and he will separate them into two groups, this group and this group. And the first question you're wanting to ask is, well, if I was there, I was like, well, what's the criteria? Because I want to be in that group. What's the criteria? How do I make sure I avoid hell and get into heaven? And Jesus tells the story. Can you throw up the quotes for me? He says, this is the criteria. Who did you feed when they were hungry? Who did you give a drink to when they were thirsty? Who did you invite into the safety of your home? Who did you give clothes when they were cold? Who did you bring food to when they were sick? Who did you visit when they were shut in? If you did those things, you're in this group. You notice what he's not saying? He's not talking about beliefs, creedal statements, if you're from that ilk. He's not talking about affirmations of you know, what I think is true and what I don't think is true. He's talking about actions. When you did these things, that's the criteria. It's crazy. My, the, the preacher guy that I grew up with never referenced actions. Jesus seems very focused on this. Now, you're thinking to yourself, okay, but his actions about something else, but there's something else that he does. He tells the second part of this story. And I want to tell the second part of the story through a guy named C.S. Lewis. Does anyone know C.S. Lewis, the Narnia series? Yeah, thank you. I grew up, my mom would read those to us. I think my vocabulary is thanks to my mom because she would read these books to us over and over again. And in the last battle, the last book, there's this kind of, I'm going to paraphrase it, so for those fans out there, apologize, but let me say it this way. Imagine you're a Satan worshiper now. You all are Satan worshipers. So you worship Satan, that's your thing, you're dressed in black, you wear your like black makeup, you're all goth, you have like pentagrams and stuff like that. And you're like super into like Satan worship. It's like totally what you're into. And you're thinking, well, of course, I worship Satan. So which group are you going to be in? The one that goes to heaven or one that goes to hell? Easy. I'm a Satan worshiper. And C.S. Lewis tells his story. He says, at the end, you die and you wake up and you look around. You're like, I'm in heaven. And the character, Jesus, strolls in, and you're like, um, excuse me, why exactly am I here? Like, you understand, like, 
I'm dressed in black. I have a pentagram on. Like, I worship Satan. That was my thing. You all are Satan worshipers, right? So you're thinking, how did I get here? And this is what Jesus says in line with the story that we have from Jesus. He says to you this. Every time you reach out to a fellow Satan worshiper who is struggling, you thought that was for Satan? No, that was for me. Every time you brought food to a Satan worshiper that was sick and you brought them soup, that wasn't for Satan, that was for me. Every time you were loving, every time you were caring to your fellow Satan worshipers, it wasn't about what you believed, it was about the action itself. Jesus' criteria is so different. But the evolution of thinking didn't stop there. Over time, we started getting these questions like, people were going, there's this whole ritual with water that has to do with uh, the spiritual tradition. And, and the water was kind of meaningful. And some people said, well, no, you have to go into the water, baptism. Other people, we can like shoot you with a spray gun. That's good enough. But these groups are like, well, no, you... That's not right. You can't shoot someone with a spray gun. You have to put them underwater. And so they split. This group goes to hell. This group goes to heaven. I could probably spend an hour telling you all the evolution of creedal statements. Things that you were supposed to believe. Things that you were supposed to say is true. That people over the history of our tradition have said, this is the answer. In fact, we have someone, can you throw up the quote for me? Someone sent in something on social media. They said, um, there is a literal hell. It doesn't matter what you think. If you've not been born again and washed in the blood, you'll go to hell. End of story. Now, this isn't more part of my tradition, so the language feels a little crazy. I'm getting carry vibes where it's like, you know, blood spraying on people. But it's not that. It's something, that's something... For them, this means everything. This is the criteria. This is how you know. At this point, you're starting to ask me, Vince, how do I know if I'm going to go to hell when I die? Growing up, I had to say a prayer. Um, My tradition said this, something along the lines of, um, I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart. If you said a prayer that said, I asked Jesus into my heart, you were good. That was the criteria. The, the preacher guy who I, I told you about at the beginning, his was, he wanted you to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Again, I think it probably has to do with some ideas or some beliefs. But all of it comes from the same place. And this is where I'm going to take this message in a different direction. Because I don't in any way want you to feel like I'm making fun of different traditions. I'm not trying to. The ones that are very different from mine feel like a bit weird, and that's okay. But people have come to these, I think, in profound devotion. In a desire, a deep desire to live this out well. To do this right. But I think the question I've been asking this whole message isn't the right question. 
There's a question underneath the question. When the guy says, how do you know, or do you know for sure that when you die, you're not going to go to hell? In what framing is that question? So not what is the question, but what is the framing? The framing is, there's a right answer, and there's a wrong answer. There's a framing that says, he has the right answer. And any other answer is wrong. What he's doing is he's articulating his faith through this lens of certainty. We call it stage two spirituality. Stage two spirituality, I have to say, if you're in stage two, it is beautiful. You know the answers. You believe you know the answers. You believe you have the right things. You look around, you're in a room like this, and you can look around and be like, hey, we all agree. We all have certainty. We know the answers. My mom was a stage two. She got diagnosed with cancer. It took her four and a half years to die. Brutal way to die. Her final journal entries were completely in peace. Her belief that there is a heaven and she was going to go to it and her conception of God was he's going to be there waiting with open arms and love. Stage two is beautiful. And if you're in stage two or if you know someone in stage two, I feel a sense of jealousy for that. Because if that's you and that works for you, I watched my mom and I've seen the power of it. But here's the thing. Stage two works in certainty. And some of us, and I don't know why, some of us, certainty doesn't work the same as for others. We start to doubt. I don't know why. My mom didn't doubt. I gave her every doubt I ever thought of. <laughs> I don't know how many rides back to our hometown where I was like, Mom, I don't think there's a God. And she's like, blah, you know, bawling. And like, <laughs> I didn't realize. I just, it didn't, certainty didn't work for me. I remember sitting in seminary. So I'm going to be, I'm sitting in a room of pastors with a bunch of other pastors, all training. We're studying the Bible at like incredibly high levels. I'm talking to the theology, or the theology prophet's talking to us. He's translating the stuff from Greek. It's like nerdville for Bible people. He exegetes this passage, which is a fancy way of saying interpreting it and doing a bunch of fancy stuff with it. And then he says this. He says the line that finally broke me. He says, okay, we've just studied this passage, but you can never, ever preach this. You can never tell your community about this passage. Wait, am I not in Bible school studying the Bible? And isn't the Bible the point? 
but you're telling me that there's another set of rules that you have that says I can't preach from the Bible because it doesn't fit with something else? And I just remember, oh, I lost stage two then. I've wanted it back many times. For some of you, it has to do with something you said, something you believed, something you didn't believe. You have those doubts like I do, but like, wait, wait a second. So all I need to do is be bathed in the blood. Uh, what was the other one? Sorry. Do you guys remember the quote that they had online? Washed in the blood and something about the... Born again, thank you, thank you. And you go, wait a second, that's it? So like, I just need to do that and then I can be a horrible person? My tradition, it's like, once you say the prayer, it's like a get out of jail free card. You can literally do anything. I have a cousin who said his prayer when he was like five. He has not cared a rip about anyone since then. But my aunt's like... He's in. And I'm like, uh, really? <laughs> you know, I'm trying to be that nephew that, like, keep your mouth shut, Clausen. But there's something that's like, really? For some of you, and I know it, it's because your sexual orientation. You didn't work the way the group worked. For whatever reason, I don't know why. But suddenly the group that said, we have it all figured out, said, no, no, you don't fit. Or maybe there's someone you loved and you watched them get kicked out and you're going, but I can't, I can't do this that way. You started to realize certainty doesn't work for you. In no way does our doubts undermine the beauty of stage two. For the people who are stage two and who know people of stage two, I don't want, I spent years trying to give them my doubts. They don't have them. Let them live in the beauty of their tradition. But honor that it doesn't work for you. Chances are it never will. For whatever reason, we have a different path. We're going to have to do this differently. And because I care about your emotions and I care about the feeling of this, of losing your religion, of the feeling of like you have this certainty and then all of a sudden these doubts creep in and you're going, but wait a second, I liked the certainty better. It was more, it felt good. I liked it. It worked for me, but uh, I can't. That's painful. Now we're lucky. In our community we have songwriters, poets, people who write what we feel. And Alessandra wrote this song as she's journeying through these different stages of faith. She uses different language. I use certainty and doubts. She uses belief and disbelief. 
For me, we've been talking about this through the lens of the afterlife. What is the afterlife? What's going to happen? Is there a conception? Is this conception right? Is this conception wrong? And then, if there's a good and a bad place, what's the criteria? How do I make sure I go to the good place? That's where we've been framing it. She's framing it through her conception of God. But the emotion's there. At one point she says, if I could just go back, I think I would. as we wrestle with this move away from the group, move away from this certainty, move away from this beautiful way of doing faith, and we realize that doesn't work for us. We have to do it differently. I want us to honor those feelings today. So as they sing, I want you to feel the feelings you have of stepping out of stage two, of watching people you love step out of stage two. Honor those feelings. Feel them as deeply as you can. And when we come back, I want to show you the beauty of stage three. You can now see that that original question that that preacher gave was a stage two question. It honored his stage two journey. There is an answer. He has it. There's one answer. You just need to have the right answer. But it only works for the people who don't have these doubts. If I, if I came up here and I said, are you sure you're not going to go to hell when you die? And they say, okay, all you need to do is like tap the top of your, or rub the top of your head and pat your belly, and then you're going to for sure good. If I said that to you, would you buy it? I'm certain. I'm right. Can you see how certainty doesn't work for us? There is no answer to that question that fits for us. That's why stage three, I said, if you, if you don't need to go here, don't. Tried to snipe, I tried to get my mom in here her whole life. I realized halfway through her death, Vin, shut your mouth. Her way's working. It just doesn't work for you. What's that last line? Can you throw the very last line up from the last song for me, Nathaniel? Is it a sad goodbye? That's what it feels like. Just leave it up for a second. Leaving stage two into stage three, it feels like that, doesn't it? Like we're giving up something. But maybe there's something else. Stage three is full of doubts. It's often very much in your head. (laughs) You can always tell when I'm in my stage three, because when I start talking about stage two, I'm really mean because I'm just cranky and I'm just mad about everything. But stage three is just a phase. It just says, I can't do it through certainty. Chances are you can't do it through certainty. So what's left? There's another stage, four. It's not better or worse. I think it's the harder route. But for some of us, it's the only option. It's this. 
Can you throw up the slide for me? Stage four says spirituality without certainty. We're not asking the question, what is true? We're asking the question, where's truth? It's not the question of, okay, I've told you guys a whole ton of different afterlife conceptions, haven't I? From like, you're dead, you're dead, to like resuscitation, to apocalypticism, to like post-Jesus, we're getting into these like afterlife conceptions where, you know, after you die, maybe you could all go to a bad place, but maybe you'll become good again, and then there's one that just eternal torment. We have all these conceptions, and the question you want to ask is, which is true? But that's the wrong question for stage four. Stage four finds beauty in asking, where's the truth in all of it? Where is the truth in all of it? We don't, we don't look like this. What's the truth? One thing. We open our eyes and say, where is all the truth? We look at our entire spiritual tradition. We go, okay, there's that first one. There's no afterlife. Your life is what it is. When you're dead, you're dead. When I live in the truth of that moment, I go, holy crap. If I go home from here and I haven't eaten anything and I'm cranky and hangry, and I start treating my wife like a, you know, bit snappy, a bit cranky, a bit brutal. I'm creating hell for her, am I? The truth in the first one for me is my actions matter in this world because this is what I got. The afterlife conception of the first one, resuscitation, we start getting this idea that, you know, good things happen to good things, bad things happen to bad people. Suddenly I don't have to be the, the goodness police anymore. The truth for me is I don't have to walk around being like, okay, you did it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're believing it wrong. I'm like, ah, the afterlife will take care of that. Remember I told you that story about the, <laughs> I'm not going to say, but it rhymes with American lady in Italy. She's screaming at the guy for cutting in line at the, the ferry station. She's living in this world that says she has to police fairness. That's her job. Lane's probably got like four ulcers or something like that. It's a big job, right? As soon as we get into these conceptions of afterlife where we're looking at our actions having eternal consequences. Some days when I'm feeling particularly lazy and particularly cranky and particularly self-absorbed, sometimes I need a bit of a kick in the butt and say, hey, Clausen, what if your actions right now will matter for eternity? You still want to say that? You still want to do that? Stage four says there's truth in all of it. Which truth do you need to wrestle with today? Which truth do you need to do to grow your spiritual journey, to find connection to something more? It's not about believing in one. That's a different path. Ours is finding the truth that we need in all of it. The language I've been using is mystery. The language uh, Alessandra used in this one is glory. It's an old word from the Christian tradition, but it's, it's this idea of something more, something bigger. That's stage four. It's not a honing in on a truth, a single. It's seeing truth in all of it. 
It's looking at your Muslim neighbor who's just like the nicest human being in the history of the world and saying, there's truth in that person's journey. It's looking at everything in life and saying there's truth everywhere if we have eyes to see it. Sure, we're not all focused on the same truth at the same time. Makes it feel a little bit weird. We don't all agree. We don't all focus on the same things. But it's a journey perfectly built for you and for me. If we're willing. It can be a dark path to get there. You have to give up stage two. It's beautiful. But if you're like me and the doubts or whatever, this is the way we do spirituality. I asked them to play this last song as an anthem. Because I don't want to leave it in this dark place like, crap, we lost stage two. That was awesome. And why can't I go back? And geez. I said, play us an anthem. Help us remember that this journey, our journey, our stage four journey, it's different, but it's beautiful. That is the end of the Afterlife series. It's been a bit of a journey, hasn't it? And in the end, I'm looking at Brad and he's going, yeah, but you didn't answer the question, Vince. And now you understand why. This whole series was designed to show you a pathway to spirituality that was different. It didn't rely on certainty. It showed you truth through the ages, through all of our spiritual ancestors. It said, find the gem inside of any of these that connects you to that glory. May we leave here connected to something deeper and wider. That's stage four. Amen. Folks, next series starts next week. It is a stage four romp through the Old Testament. It is going to be a blast. You are going to listen to stuff and hear stories you will not, <laughs> you do not see coming. But in stage four, we're always looking for the truth anywhere. Welcome you back. See you next week. Have a great week.